What's up guys? Just a quick update on how you can find World of Wally. Uh, we are on pretty much every listening platform that you get your podcast at. If you can't find us, please drop us a message and we'll work diligently to try to get on that platform so you'll have the opportunity to hear us. Also, you can find us on Facebook, also at World of Wally. Uh, on the Facebook page, you will be able to catch up on previous episodes and also updates and storylines and pretty much anything else that uh, we have going on here at World of Wally. So, uh, like I said, guys, that's where you can check us out. And now, let's get back to the episode. What's up, guys? This is William with the World of Wally. Uh, this selection today, this end of season episode, is my host pick. I'm a big baseball guy, and I think that uh, this guy just needs a little bit more light shed on his situation. And so I selected this as my host pick end of season. So I hope you guys enjoy it. It is an abbreviated rebroadcast of a previous episode called Pete the Cheat. Thanks, guys. Okay, guys, now Pete Rose, he has um, asked for, he's requested reinstatement by the league on at least a couple of occasions, major news event occasions. He's, he's done it more than that, but uh, with two separate uh, MLB commissioners, uh, Bud Selig and then also the new guy, Rob Manfred. Now, here's a Rob Manfred interview on the Dan Patrick Show. This is from like September 2015. Uh, Listen to what this guy has to say, and then we're going to get into a few other issues with his possible reinstatement. The obligatory Pete Rose question. Mm-hmm. Could could you put him on the ballot? Without reinstating him as the commissioner, could you put him on the ballot? Yeah. That is the mix you can't get to. Um, I can't get to, okay? Um, and let me explain what I mean by that. Um my authority relates to the permanently ineligible list in baseball, which is a functional list, right? In other words, uh, people who go on the permanently ineligible list, we've reached a judgment that they can't be close enough to the game to affect an outcome because of previous involvement with respect to gambling. Um, if I took him off the permanently ineligible list, where he would really go under the Hall of Fame's existing rules is to a veterans committee, yeah. um, as, as I understand it. I can't leave him on the permanently ineligible list and make the Hall of Fame put him on the ballot. That's, it's not within my power. That would be a Hall of Fame decision. What, what could you hear now that would change what your predecessors were holding true to? You know, I, I'm very open-minded on Has he paid this his penance, though? Topic. Well, uh, you know, I don't see this as a, and it's why I described the list before as functional. Um, it's not a penance question. It's not like I sinned and at some point, um, you know, that sin is absolved. It, it is, um, can you reach the conclusion um, that it would be okay? for Pete Rose to manage a, a, a major league club. That's the question you have to answer yourself with, or ask yourself with respect to the permanently ineligible. Yeah, but if he doesn't have to hold a job. Like, well, why what, why, the, why can't I put him on the ballot? He just, I wouldn't let Pete hold a job in baseball. I agree with you, Dan, that there are two very, very different issues. I only have one of them, okay? 
My issue is, should Pete Rose, if, if I take him off the permanently ineligible list, somebody could hire him next week, okay, for a job in baseball. That's the issue that I have in front of me. I see that question very different from the question of, you know, should he be considered for the Hall of Fame based on what he did as a player to manager? I see him as very different issues. What if the Hall of Fame said we want we want to put him on the ballot because they they can act separately from the commissioner? That's right. Uh, you know, I'm a uh, member of the Hall of Fame board. Um, they have every right to make that decision. It has nothing nothing to do with whether he should or shouldn't remain on the permanently ineligible. Well, do you think baseball. he's a Hall of Famer? Well, I think that uh, um, I have a policy um, about questions like that. I think that uh, the writers who have votes on Hall of Fame members uh, do a very good job uh, of, you vote for? of deciding whether or not somebody should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, I would have to really think hard about the overall um, experience that Pete had with baseball, including his performance on the field and all of these other issues in order to reach a decision on that. I've just never done it. I'm not a voter. I've never really thought about it. Um, Has he been 100% truthful? Well, that's a very different. You mean with me? Yeah. Um, I have only had a very brief conversation with him at the All-Star game. Okay. Um, I haven't met with him yet. Um, you know, uh, so it's difficult for me to answer that question. Because that would be the big concern I would have if I were the commissioner, that if I'm going to do this for Pete, I need to know, did he bet against the Cincinnati Reds? Did he bet when he was a player? Well, let me say this. I think truthfulness is sort of the bedrock of every relationship, so I <laughs> would tend to agree with you. I think it would be a mistake. Um, I'll, I'll say this. I think it would be a mistake for Pete to come in and do anything other than tell me everything and the complete truth with respect to everything. What's the time frame to talk to him? Um, there's, I'm not going to get into a specific timetable except to say this to you. Before um, calendar 2015 comes to a close, I will have met with him and given him a decision. A man who says baseball is his life may have to spend the rest of his life as an outsider in the sport, baseball legend, Pete Rose has been banned from the game by Commissioner Bart Giamatti. CNN's Nick Charles reports. After nearly three decades in the game, baseball for Pete Rose became a vanished reality Thursday. Baseball Commissioner Bart Giamatti in New York ended six months of swirling questions and banished Pete Rose permanently from baseball in front of a backdrop appropriately draped in funereal black. The banishment for life of Pete Rose from baseball is the, is the sad end of a sorry episode. One of the game's greatest players has engaged in a variety of acts which have stained the game. And he must now live with the consequences of those acts. In Cincinnati. Okay, guys, we're back from the break. Uh, that clip you just heard was the actual news footage of when the story was... Um, dropped about the actual lifetime ban of Pete Rose. Now, um, like I said, there's been commissioners that have come and gone since that point. Uh, they've had opportunities to uh, be able to do something about his actual lifetime ban. The, um, I remember that when it was first announced, um, I, you know, of course, everybody was in shock. They could not believe it. Uh, a lot of folks that 
uh, don't know about Pete Rose, especially some of our, our younger listeners that don't know anything about Pete Rose, he was a guy that, um, well, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a media darling, that's for sure. Um, he was sometimes came across as being brash and arrogant. Um, a lot of people say that if he would have just come clean about what he did earlier, that he would have gotten a lot more um, of a chance from Major League Baseball for the possibility of actual reinstatement, um, even the opportunity to play ball again. Now look guys, it's, it's real simple. This guy was an outstanding talent, but he also had an outstanding um, ego, very inflated ego, very arrogant. Um, he was good at what he did, and he knew he was, and he let the world know about it. And like I said, that rubbed some people the wrong way. Now, to really understand exactly, let me first of all say, Pete Rose not the only guy that's ever been caught cheating. Um, there's been incidents of cheating not only throughout baseball, but football and basketball and hockey and every other sport that's, you know, every other organized professional sport in the world. Um, for example, I mean, some of the more recent examples, uh, of course, the Houston Astros have been, um, you know, they've been accused and they're going through the process of um, trying to determine to what level they were part of a, steal, a sign stealing um, situation that um, looks like aided them in the, uh, their ability to win the uh, World Series. So like I said, you know, cheating has been going on in the game of baseball for quite a while. I know during my younger years, we dealt with situations about performance-enhancing drugs. Um, I know situations like Mark McGuire, for example, Sammy Sosa, Rafael Palmero, guys like that that actually went in front of Congress and actually had to testify on their involvement in the actual PED or performance-enhancing drug um, investigation that Congress actually had. So cheating has gone on forever. But the situation that Pete Rose found himself in is he was banned for life because of betting. He actually bet on um, we bet on all types of sports, but he essentially, or for the situation that he got banned, he specifically bet on baseball. He not only bet on baseball games, but he also bet on games for which his team was involved in, um, you know, and especially you know, not only as a player, but as a manager. And that's kind of where the, it's, his, his story is a little different. I mean, it's, it's, it's cheating is cheating and I understand that um, but like I said that's the main reason that's the absolute reason that he got his lifetime banned but to kind of truly understand how it actually happened and, and how they came to such a result you got to go there's a you've, I've always heard this expression if you do not learn from history it you will be destined to repeat it and you got to go way 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 back to probably even though Pete Rose is quite a story, you've got to go back probably to the most well-known um, story of cheating where the players actually, it was not just players, it was a group of players on the same team actually influenced the, um, the result of an actual World Series championship. Now, I don't know, like I said, some of our younger listeners might not have any idea what I'm talking about. Some of our older listeners might not know. 
But the situation I'm talking about is the 1919 Black Sox uh, baseball scandal. Now, if you want the opportunity to uh, check that out, there's all kind of information on the internet about it. Uh, there is an outstanding movie that was made called Eight Man Out, which is kind of a biopic type situation where they actually took all the information that they gathered at the point of the actual release of the movie and that's they put that movie together trying to use as much factual information about the situation as they possibly could now you had a, a group of eight black Sox players that uh now that's another situation like where rose was part of the big red machine in cincinnati these guys as a collective unit were the top of the line they were the absolute best team in the eyes of not only fans but a lot of critics of baseball at that time being the considered the best team in professional baseball at that time so when they went in against the Cincinnati Reds and played in the 1919 World Series it should have been a foregone conclusion that they were going to sweep the Reds out win the championship and move on but with everything money got involved and in this case, the Black Sox players that were involved in it, they actually had a situation to where they um, felt like they weren't getting paid enough. You know, their compensation levels weren't high enough. So they took it into their own hands about how they wanted to handle it. Now, um, a, a term that I'd heard I don't have any, I have no idea where it actually originated from, but I'd, I'd heard this. And this might have even been featured in the movie that I just spoke about because I actually watched that movie uh, two or three times and it was because it was it was a really good movie to watch. Um, the 1919 Black Sox baseball scandal, like I said, was was just one of many, but it's it's very it's a watermark event in professional baseball. They say that the day of the trial which actually was part of this process when the when the verdicts and when the when the end result was known that that day baseball lost its innocence now it like i said it dealt with betting and other improper behavior of course that uh you got to realize now we're we're in a time in american history not just baseball history at that time in 1919 where you were seeing a large influence of sports betting, but it was being run through very irreputable um, you know, situations. It was run through um, what commonly is referred to as the mob or the mafia. They were the ones controlling most of the sports booking that was going on at that time in America. So here's how this story kind of played out. All right. It, um, it was called a unique situation at that time because it was because this is the biggest story that had ever come out you gotta realize everything was back then it was trains and, and very few automobiles and the media was not 24 hours seven day a week it was everything was generated through print media uh, so something might happen on one coast and it might be three days you know before the the opposite coast was able to get that information so so news traveled at a snail's pace compared to what it does now so in 1919 there was eight members of the chicago white Sox. um they were 
found out to have accepted money from gamblers or, or through bookie or through booking agents, the mafia, the mob, whatever you want to call it, to actually throw the World Series. Now, you have historians and you also had journalists that, you know, they, they've done great studies into the scandal and, um, you know, they say it didn't happen, um, you know, in a vacuum. You know, the culture of Major League Baseball and how the players were paid helped to shape this whole problem. That's what I was talking about earlier. You know, they just felt like they didn't get enough money. That's kind of where they were coming from. They were uh, high talent, high ability guys that were getting paid, in their opinion, they were getting paid peanuts. So, and they just wanted more money. So, let's try to understand exactly what's going on with this situation. Now, a baseball historian, a guy named Steve Steinberg, um, was, was telling another guy during an interview named Brian uh, Blinkenstaff, who was writing for an actual outlet called Vice Sports. Uh, Steinberg said, I think it would be fair to say that the Black Sox scandal was not a unique event. Well, that's true. It, at, at that time, or now it's not for sure, uh, but at that time, I'd, I'd probably lean against it. I'd probably say, yeah, it probably is. It was probably pretty unique for that time. It was probably going on quite a bit, but it was brought to the limelight, you know, through this incident. You know, it's hard to say, um, you know, like I said, a team threw a game here and there. I'm pretty sure back then that kind of stuff probably was going on, but it was what we call it today. It was all on the down low. Nobody actually spoke about it. Nobody actually brought attention to it. I think um, that's what they were trying. These two guys were during an interview. That's what they were talking about. And of course, like, <laughs> like I said earlier, I'm pretty sure it wasn't confined to just this one series, this World Series. I'm pretty sure it wasn't confined to just that one season. I'm pretty sure it happened across the board. Like I said, it just wasn't highlighted. It wasn't brought to the to the the forefront of the um, of the baseball world at that time. Now, a guy named Evan Andrews, um, he wrote for History.com, and um, he said, in spite of persistent rumors about the fix. Baseball leading figures appeared content to let the 1919 World Series go unexamined. Now, that's um, that's they're not wanting to dig too deep in your closet kind of deal. The officials at that time were like, I don't, we don't want to pull any skeletons out of the closet because think about it, guys. In 1919, I mean, you're looking at a sport that you know originated. Uh, you know, around the, the end time of, of actual the actual Civil War. So we're looking at, um, you know, less than three decades of actual professional baseball. And at that time, you know, it wasn't even professional, but it was just baseball. It had morphed into prof- to the professional ranks of baseball. So you're looking at, you know, less than, you know, like a 40-year window from the time of inception of the game to to now, probably at that point, their biggest, their largest, um, you know, their, their, their biggest misstep. So they, they didn't want to draw any more attention to themselves than they had to. And I, you know, look, in retrospect, they probably thought they were doing the right thing. But, you know, like I said, um, like I say, you know, I hear people say all the time, evil will always be brought to the light. And that's, that's exactly what happened here. Now, um, the craziest thing of all was, is the actual World Series fix was not even, 
like I said, that, that's not something that they even wanted to pursue an investigation of. The one thing, the one event that actually brought this, uh, you know, the possibility of investigation was an actual regular season game between the Chicago Cubs and the Philadelphia Phillies that was determined as rigged or fixed. So a grand jury was convened, and this is the trial I was talking about earlier in this segment. You know, speculation you know, was, was at an all-time high. You know, the previous year's World Series was under, you know, it was under the microscope at that time. And, of course, they, they were starting to interview people. So they started off, they brought in a guy named Eddie Sissote. Sissote, yeah, Sissote. And I probably butchered that guy's last name. It's C-I-C-O-T-T-E. Um, matter of fact, I watched the movie, and like I said, he's one of the main characters in it. And they referred to him as Eddie the whole time. I, until I started doing research on this actual uh, episode, I didn't even know what the guy, I couldn't have told you what the guy's last name was. But he was a White Sox pitcher. He was one of their aces. And he actually confessed to the jury, which prompted a whole series of confessions from the other players. So when it all, when the dust settled, the smoke cleared, eight men stood indicted for conspiracy. Like I said, now they were ultimately found not guilty. So the you know, jury of their peers found them not guilty. Of course, you got to realize after a scandal of that magnitude, you know, their, their careers were done. They, they didn't, you know, they didn't have a chance to pursue any more professional baseball. Now, like I said, a few of them, even after this event, this instance, continued to play baseball at some level, uh, semi-professional, stuff like that. So, but their major league baseball careers were over. And of course, after this trial, that's when the infamous Black Sox title was attached to them. So they, they were the members of the Chicago White Sox, but it was because it put such a, a dark cloud over the organization, they were referred to as the Black Sox from that point on. Now, the um, members of that White Sox team that participated in actually throwing or, or rigging or fixing of that World Series, you know, they, they might not, um, they may well not have been the first but at that point, they became the poster children for actual cheating. You know, doing something that uh, gave you an unfair advantage to prosper from it. Now, yes, they lost the World Series, but in the end, in their mind, they felt like, hey, you know, we lost the World Series. At that time, the World Series, it just didn't hold the luster that, that as the years progressed, you know, yeah, it was a World Series, and yeah, they got a little extra money because of, you know they were able to play longer in the season. But in the long run, they were looking, uh, you know, financially, at they needed to make more money to help their families and their lifestyles and stuff like that. You also got to realize, I mean, we're in 1919. You're less than a decade away from the stock market crash, which put the entire economic system, the entire financial sector. Of the United States under you know, under a pretty serious strain and a bind. So, um, you know, players, like I said, they didn't feel like they got paid fairly. That was their reasoning, um, and that's that's why they were embroiled in the scandal. Now, um, a guy named Jack Moore um, was writing for Vice Sports, 
he, he this is he kind of fills in the holes about the financial aspect of it, what their their mindset was and what their thinking was. He was talking about the method of compensating players for their participation in the World Series changed in 1918. This change caused the Boston Red Sox to strike. It showed the uh, precarious financial situation players found themselves in at the hands of team owners. Now, he had um, he'd written earlier in an earlier article, he said, the players on the two World Series teams received their pay from ticket revenue. But in 1918, the National Commission decided that teams would be paid a flat rate. That rate, of course, was less than they would have received before. So see, they, as the owners saying, okay, we're, we're tired of not making as much money as we possibly can, so we're gonna fix that. And look, collective bargaining and all that, this is, this, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, the infancy of the league and as it started to grow, you run into more and more financial situations that, that are involved. Um, you know, at the point we're at now in, in Major League Baseball, I mean, with the collective bargaining agreements and stuff like that, these guys, you can be an absolute journeyman in the major leagues now and still make a comfortable living, you know, well more than you could do probably doing, you know, anything else uh, from an occupation standpoint. So, like I said, this is, this, this probably, this one situation was probably the very, very, almost the inception of what eventually uh, became the players union and, and it also, you know, morphed into collective bargaining agreements and stuff like that. So that could be, you know, where all this got started was because of this situation. All right, so he was talking about them getting paid the flat rate and of course it being less than, than the previous years. He stated, while the change was reported in the papers that winter, the news was never directly relayed to the players, not that they had any formal recourse if they disagreed with a new policy. So see, at that point, um, athletes back then, when they signed on with the teams, they were more like a piece of property. I mean, they could be used in any capacity they needed to be used to generate revenue for ownership and for the league itself. Now, the policy that they put in place, it was reversed after 1918. And like I said, it left elastic impact, um, you know, because you see the result of it because of the 1919 World Series. Those guys thought that they needed to do something. Their mindset was they had to do something so drastic to actually impact their own personal finances uh, that they ended up cheating and throwing the actual a World Series in an effort to try to make a few more dollars. Now, I guess you can say, you know, baseball got its dessert with that World Series because the White Sox players were so, I'm not going to say desperate, but they, they felt backed into a corner. So they, they were willing to dump um, everything. You know, they were willing to jeopardize their livelihood that they were making through salary at that point their legacy, you know, the impact they were going to have on baseball, not only that moment, but from, you know, for the continuation of their career. Um, and even their freedom, because, I mean, think about it, guys. They were looking at doing something that was going to involve court litigation, which could have, you know, sent them to jail. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's hard. Like I said, I, 
I don't know the situation each one of them were in. I, I've never been placed in that kind of situation, but I just don't understand why anybody would make such a decision, um, especially with all the God-given ability that these guys had. Um, and back then, those guys, you know, baseball players back then were warriors. I mean, they'd, they'd have pitchers that would throw, you know, 250, 300 innings a, a year. Uh, you got relief pitchers that won't, you know, this day and time, they won't throw 300 innings in a career. So, and they did, the shock, most shocking thing about it is, they did all of that for $20,000. Now, yeah, you say $20,000, that's nothing. $20,000 back then was quite a bit of money, but $20,000, just that number. Um, I, I remember watching the movie Eight Man Out and seeing the, the actual money they received. And, and some of these guys, the craziest thing of all is, not all of these eight guys received their money. Now, that was brought up in the movie a couple of the guys never even never even got their money and you know they did all of that because they felt like ownership didn't want to share the revenue didn't want to share the pie with them um like i said the previous fix had been part you know that regular season fixed game was the catalyst that kind of started this investigation so you know you, you go beyond the money don't worry about the money um, you know, could there have been another reason for what happened in the 1919 World Series? Well, here's where um, kind of a, a light into what happened. Now, in 1927, a guy named Charles Risberg, his nickname was Swede. Um, I can only assume he was of Swedish descent. Could must be where he got his name from. Charles Swede Risberg, who was the ringleader of the eight Black Sox player scandal, he actually sat down, had a conversation with the Chicago Tribune, and he actually informed them of four games that had been fixed or rigged between the White Sox and the Detroit Tigers, and that the entire Detroit team knew. And those games, he said, were played between, uh, they said they were played in two doubleheaders on September the 2nd and September the 3rd of 1917. That's brash. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you, that's, that's brash and bold right there because you know something's going on. You are bold enough to make a decision that it could affect your, not only your freedom, but your financial, you know, you know, lifestyle um, a year later it would actually be it'd be, the, it'd be the next season be 1918 so you go to the print media at that time which was the internet for the United States because like I said print media was about the only way that um, you, know, you could still you could get actual current news I mean guys we're talking about a, a time in history to where the telegraph was still an active part of communication that's how far back we're talking so at this point, the commissioner of baseball, and I had to look this guy's name up because I don't know if they ever even referenced him uh, in anything I'd read. The guy's name was Kennesaw Landis. Anyway, the baseball commissioner at that time called Risberg in to testify. And during testimony, he actually confirmed what he said to the paper. He also linked the games to the 1919 scandal. 
he alleged that the gangs were thrown by Detroit in exchange for money and that Chicago had thrown three games in 1919 and this is in Risberg's words as a kind of belated thank you. Like I said, guys, another example, I talked about a little bit about Rose earlier, about confident in his abilities, but he was a bit arrogant. Um, you know, he was kind of bullish, didn't want to admit, you know, defeat, didn't want to admit, admit failure, didn't want to admit wrongdoing. Well, I see a lot of similarities between, especially the more vocal, um, the more vocal Black Sox players, the, the, the eight, which all of them weren't. There was two subgroups in this group of eight. There was two or three guys, the smarter, more educated guys, that saw the potential for what kind of money they could make and by doing this. And then there was a, le- a lesser group, just talented guys, weren't that, you know, they weren't that intelligent. Um, I mean, for example, uh, guy, one of the guys that was featured on this this group of eight is a guy named Sheilas Joe Jackson, which I personally never got a chance to even see archive footage of him playing. But from everything I've ever read, this guy was considered one of the top, probably 100 players in Major League Baseball history. I mean, that guy was just that good. But this is also a guy that when he agreed to be part of the actual of the actual game fixing they they made them sign contracts he couldn't even sign his contract because the dude couldn't he could barely read and could not write like he put an x for his mark on the contract and then of course he regretted it from that moment on that kind of stuff but like i said like i was talking about earlier if you're if you got uh if you got evil evil's going to be found to the you know it's going to come to the light it's going to be found by the light so um, eight eight talented players made a very poor decision. All right, after some additional testimony that the commissioner, you know, they brought in the commissioner brought in, um, you know, like I said, they they ended up um, interviewing all the guys that were involved. Um, you know, he he the commissioner actually ruled that it didn't take place, even after hearing everything. And here was his his logic. He said that uh, he was talking about when he was asked about it. He said money had changed hands for some reason between the White Sox and the Tigers. Now this was uh, actually written by uh, Blickenstaff, who is the guy, the, the earlier reference I made to the article that was written. Then Kennesaw, he ruled that baseball teams could no longer give money to other teams for any reason and that players who bet on other baseball games would be banned for a year. Players that bet on their own games would be banned for life. So that's that's kind of where Pete Rose got hung up. You know, he he would, um, the, Pete Rose bet on everything, okay? He bet on every sport that there was. If it was a game of chance, he, was, he bet on it. And that's common fact. I mean, records have been revealed to prove that. He's admitted to it. The betting on other baseball teams would have just gotten him a year. But what doomed him to his lifetime ban was he actually bet on games that he was actively involved in, either as a player or as a manager. And that's the lifetime ban that they talk about. So like I said, to truly know 
why he is or currently in the situation he's in. Um, that's why you need to know kind of the history, kind of the benchmark of how this, this has this actually happened. Um, it's, it's simple, you know, he, he didn't follow the rules and he got caught. But like I try to tell a lot of folks, a lot of folks break the rules and, and we call ourselves a forgiving society and we forgive, we, we pick and choose about who we forgive. You know, you got guys, like I said, you got a guy like Barry Bonds. Got, he hit more home runs in a single season than any player in Major League history. Um, he's also the all-time, at this time, he's also the all-time home run leader. You got a guy like Mark McGuire that up until Bonds broke his record, he had the home run record for single season. You had a guy in Sammy Sosa who also got caught cheating. All this performance enhancing drugs that we were talking about earlier. Him and Mark McGuire put on the greatest hitting display of home runs in one season that I know I've ever seen and I'm pretty sure we'll never see it again. You've got a current player like Brian Braun that got caught. And this dude, not only is still playing ball, he's an all-star. He's still being acknowledged as one of the greatest in the game. It's example after example after example. My problem is you cannot pick and choose who you want to forgive. Now, like I said, my biggest issue is I want to know, is he... Um, you know, he's, he's, in my opinion, he's, he's one of the great, he's the greatest hitter, um, that I got a chance to see him play. And of course in video archives, I got a chance to see him play. The guy is just one of the best. He's called Charlie Helsley for a reason because he played the game, hair on fire, everything downhill. He gave his heart and soul into it. Yes, he made mistakes. I'm not arguing that point. He made mistakes, but everybody makes mistakes. My biggest question is, we, when are we going to quit picking and choosing who that we forgive and who we give uh, second chances to? Now, like I said, since his lifetime ban, we've had baseball commissioners come and go. Now, the guy that we got in there now, Manfred, um, that that uh, segment, that little snippet uh, excerpt from that interview that I played earlier, that was he had first time he'd really t- had any kind of conversation with Rose was then. Now that was in, that was four years ago. And now with the new Houston Astros scandal that has arisen and brought cheating back to the limelight, you know, back to the forefront, how is he going to look at that situation now? Can't, will he honestly take a good hard look at Pete Rose and say, hey, you know what? Let me, let me dig deeper. Let me, let me check on this and let me see what I can do to kind of help. Um, I'm, I'm probably in the minority. I know I've, a lot of big name folks have come out and said, look, you know, it's okay to reinstate him or it's, or I, I, we'd love to see him in the Hall of Fame. Not many of them have said, hey, he needs to be reinstated and he needs to be in the Hall of Fame. Me personally, I don't think he should ever serve in a baseball capacity ever again. I don't think he should be reinstated and be given the opportunity to do anything connected to baseball. But saying that, I also believe he needs to be reinstated under the provision that is he's reinstated, he is officially retired, he cannot participate in any kind of baseball activities from this point forward unless it is some type of um, Hall of Fame related um, promotion or endorsement. And he needs to be as soon as 
You know, and here's the deal. I, he shouldn't have to wait five years after he's reinstated. He should be on the ballot as soon as he's reinstated, and he needs to be in the Hall of Fame. It's just that simple. But we'll see, guys. We'll see. Hang in there. Be right back. Okay, guys, we're back from the break. Uh, here in this final segment, um, with all the information I've put out there about Pete Rose and where he kind of falls in this whole spectrum of where he's going to end up, how's he going to be remembered. You know, he's Hall of Fame talent. He put up Hall of Fame stats because he deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. He made mistakes. You know, with the new um, MLB commissioner, you know, with the change of the guard, you know, is there a chance with all the stuff that's going on right now, especially with the Houston Astros recently being implicated, um, you know, the cheating scandal that, that they, that's been alleged and, you know, they're, they're going through the, the proof process now to, to uh, you know, they've already started handing down the, um, you know, the penalties, um, you know, how are the players going to be, what's going to actually end up happening to the players as of right now, nothing, but, you know, is the World Series going to be stripped from them, that kind of stuff. So that that kind of opens the door again for Pete Rose and, and his saga to kind of be brought to an end. So I thought in this final segment, the, the best thing to do would be take it to the fans and see what they thought. So we actually, we, we went on our Facebook page, World of Wally on Facebook, and we asked a simple question. Does Pete Rose deserve to be in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame? Yes or no? And we got, you know, quite a few comments. Um, you know, resounding yes from pretty much everybody that um, you know, I'm scanning down through here. I don't really see anybody that is not leaning toward yes or an emphatic yes. Uh, we did have some pretty interesting additional comments, though. We had, uh, let's see, we got Josh, for example. Josh put yes, and then he followed it up by saying, all the Astros literally cheated all the way to the World Series and will keep the title and the trophy. He bet money on his own team. Glad Josh brought that up because as I stated in the earlier segment, that's the very reason that the lifetime ban was placed upon him. That was a precedent set. Uh, way back in the early 1900s because of the actual betting which occurred involving their own team. They essentially took money. It was a bet against themselves, technically. That's how the ruling reads. You know, if you if you get if you caught, get caught betting, it's a one-year ban. If you get caught betting on your team, you know, it's, it's a lifetime ban. Got another one here. Uh, Cray. Cray says, yes. What he did as a player has been unmatched. I absolutely agree with that. Probably one of my favorite comments that was left uh, was by Robbie. He says, yes, since they are letting everything else go, why not let his sin be forgiven? Uh, of course, Kobe White, one of our previous guests um, uh, from just last week, um, you know, he chimed in, yes, as a player. I see a lot I see a lot of these yes as a player are just simply yes. Um, another one of our listeners Paul without a doubt um, Wayne that just recently won uh, during our one of our Kobe giveaways absolutely he says like I said it's just resounding yes after resounding yes after resounding yes now 
I do agree. Um, I feel like he does need to be uh, in the Hall of Fame. I, I don't actually see it happening. Um, I do see the lifetime ban being enforced. But I do see him eventually making it to the Hall of Fame. But the problem with that is going to be I see him going in to the Hall of Fame um, as part of a posthumous um, you know, induction. Um, it'll be, and I'm not, it could be as early as, you know, two weeks after he's, you know, deceased. It could be two years. It could be 20 years. I really don't look for it to be long. I, I look for, you know, after, after his passing, I look for it to be a pretty quick process. I think at that point, um, everybody, all the decision makers within the major league system would be off the hook at that point. You know, a lifetime ban is a lifetime ban. You know, when when the player or the individual in question dies or you know is no longer with us, the lifetime ban is essentially over. Um, so they would have a loophole and escape to be able to put him in. Um, that's probably the only way I see it happening. I wish that before he died or before he, you know, like I said, before he passes on, I wish that he would have the opportunity to be really the only way that I could see an actual reinstatement before his passing would be is he would be reinstated and it would be from it would have stipulations attached to it he would be reinstated under the provision that he cannot return to any aspect of baseball in any capacity except for his induction into the Hall of Fame. And I could even see where he could be inducted, but then he would be excluded from any Hall of Fame um, related events. I mean, I could see something just that crazy also. You know, like I said, guys, it's there's never been a doubt in anybody that's ever had an opportunity to see even a clip of him play that he is Hall of Fame caliber talent. He, uh, he also had a Hall of Fame arrogance. He also had a Hall of Fame level um, conceitedness about him. Uh, he did not make a, a lot of friends in his during his career. Uh, those that he did make are loyal friends to him to this day. Um, he had teammates he didn't get along with. And those are guys that he saw every day, played alongside him every day. Like I said, he Pete Rose... Never be he will never be confused as a saint, but like he's like the rest of us. So he's a sinner, you know, and he he sinned against uh, you know his profession, and because of that, he's paying the price for it. So I I would love to see it happen before his actual passing, but I truly believe the only way he's going to ever be inducted into the Hall of Fame is after his passing, and he's placed in the Hall of Fame. Like I said, after he passes, I'd love to see a different uh, scenario play out, but I, I just don't see it, guys. Um, but hey, you, you guys listen to this. If, if you think you see another option or another way, well, I'd love to hear it. You could drop us your opinion or comment on our Facebook page. You can uh, actually send in a, a message to, the, uh, to this actual episode under the message button. 
or or whatever listening platform that you you're actually listening to there's a, there should be a message option on any of the platforms you're listening on like i said guys that's just my opinion that's just some information i provided you about the guy that's always in my mind will always always be known as charlie hustle and uh we'll see man you guys tell us what you think and as always guys wally out Join me, William Wally, every Tuesday and Friday as I share my thoughts and have engaging discussions with various guests, tackling all types of topics from religion, politics, sports, social media, and also current events and everyday observations from my very own life. Just a small town guy with some big time opinions. Love me or hate me, but you will want to listen in weekly on the podcast, World of Wally.